and welcome to Sounding Out Horsham. I'm Emma. And I'm Anna. And in this episode, we will be talking about employment. If you've lost your job this last year, or maybe you've been looking for a new one because your circumstances have changed, you're definitely not alone. Across the UK, an estimated 1.7 million people registered as unemployed between August and October last year, according to figures from PwC's economic update. And they were people who were actively seeking work, so it doesn't even account for those who are classed as long-term unemployed. And just to put into perspective, that figure was over 400,000 more people than in the same period the previous year. Yeah, and here in West Sussex, we've seen the number of people claiming universal credit rise 152% between January and November last year. So the impact of job losses is clear in this area, and it has such a big impact on us when it happens. There are the financial worries and the feelings of rejection and then when you're at your lowest you have to find that energy to find work again. Yeah it's such a roller coaster isn't it? I've been made redundant twice and the first time I remember I just signed my first mortgage agreement and I needed that monthly salary to pay that mortgage so I was I was quite worried about the financial side of things. I'd also really been enjoying the job I was in and then mine was only one of two roles I think that was being cut So I also found it hard not to take it personally. I remember just being all over the place. And then I had to go for an interview for another job and it was just awful. I think it's mainly because I just wasn't properly prepared and wasn't ready to face the fact I needed a new job. But then I did manage to secure a new job quite quickly and it actually was much better than the last one. It had much better prospects and I was in it for a lot longer. So I think sometimes these things can be a bit of a blessing in disguise, can't they? Yeah, I think so. But uh, even if that's the case, it is a shock. And in my case, we had been given hints. My workplace, the TV station where I used to work in Sweden, they shut down completely. They stopped producing local news all over the country. And even though we knew that it might happen, I don't think any of us who worked there thought that it was actually true. But it did happen. And this was just about a week before I was going to have my second child. So yeah, it was a big shock. You and I, Emma, we both know what a lot of people are going through at the moment. And this is an important issue to cover now. But luckily, we have an expert with us. So you don't have to listen to us rambling through our experiences any longer. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be speaking to Richard Brooks, who's owner and director of Horsham-based company called CTAS. Uh, Richard has helped hundreds of people into work, many of whom had been out of work for a long time. And he's got some really good suggestions on how to find the right job for you. Hi, Richard. Welcome to Standing Out Horsham. Thanks, Emma. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Anna. Very nice to meet you. And um, do you want to start off just by telling us a little bit about, uh, just explain how CETAS, how that all started? Yeah, sure. Um, I've been delivering employment programmes for about 20 years. And um, I worked for a number of charities, uh, working with very large numbers of individuals with disabilities, health conditions, mental health problems. I worked in the homelessness sector for a number of years, uh, supporting people who were homeless into work. And um, a lot of the contracts that I've delivered are Job Centre Plus funded large scale programmes. And um, uh, I left my last job about four years ago, and I uh, set up CTAS in February of 2017. So we're nearly four years old. And um, I quite quickly won a couple of small contracts and I've been delivering those ever since. And um, I've stumbled into this sector coming from a period of working in recruitment. And um, I just, I I love it because you're engaging with an enormous variety of people with all sorts of different backgrounds. And um, 
you're playing a very small part in helping them to uh, progress in their lives. How many people do you think you've helped find jobs or help get into work? Um, with CTAS, I suppose a uh, couple of hundred, probably, in, since 2017. And um, how do people get in touch with you? We get referrals through the Job Centre, primarily. Uh, we also partner with the probation services. We partner with other, other charities in the, in the area who work with young people, who work with people who have alcohol and drug problems, and they refer people to me. Uh, but I would say 80% of the referrals come from the Job Centre, with whom I've worked with very closely since and before I set up CTAS and know the people in the Job Centre very well. And But do people have to have a referral to get your help or can they just um, call you or get in touch by themselves? Yeah, they can call me. Most of the people, I, well, pretty much all the people I work with are on benefits. So if they're on benefits and they give me a call, yeah, they can join the programme. There are different programmes, have different eligibility criteria. Although the programme I have with Horsham District Council, the contract I have directly with Horsham District Council is open to anybody who lives in the district, irrespective of whether they're claiming benefits or not. So yeah, anybody in the Horsham district can receive some assistance through the programme I deliver. So it's free then, I presume. You don't have to pay to get your help. It's free for the for the for the person, yeah. Yeah. And as we've noted, the unemployment levels are much higher currently and we've seen more people are, are receiving universal credit because they've lost their jobs are you working with more people in Horsham to try and find them a job yes yes the uh, numbers in Horsham have gone up significantly probably threefold in Horsham just as it has everywhere else and um, they've recruited they've doubled the size of the staff in Horsham Job Centre the referrals are coming in very regularly and are the jobs there for those people to to go into there's still there, there are still plenty of vacancies coming through there are understandably not as many as there were maybe a year ago or 18 months ago but um, I see an increase in the number of vacancies that are coming up as businesses I suppose get used to the idea of people working from home particularly more of the sort of what would previously have been office-based work and now being advertised for people there's plenty of care work still available. Not everybody's cup of tea, but there's plenty of care work available. Those jobs still continue to be needed. There's um, plenty of health-related jobs. There's a census is happening next year. There's loads of jobs coming through for people to get involved in that. And then there's um, things like COVID vaccination and um, testing jobs. But yeah, I, I would say that there's a lot more of a variety coming through now and more of the sort of professional side the sort of business side that can be done from home uh, they seem to be back on the increase thankfully it sounds like it's a lot in the healthcare sector or in which sectors are the jobs well i mean i i work with individuals based on their own personal situation so um i don't work in any particular sector although i've helped people into jobs ranging from director level work in local authorities and and charities right across to cleaning roles hospitality roles and the issues that people have when they are out of work are exactly the same irrespective of background qualifications and and all the rest yeah there are organizations that specialize in working with particular groups of individuals but um uh, I've never seen the benefit of that. I just think a person's a person, irrespective of what they've had and what they've done. And uh, my only criteria to working with someone is that they um, they want to work. If they want to work, fine. Yeah. Some of the programmes in the past have been mandatory, so they've been mandated to come to see a provider like me, and they can be quite challenging because 
sometimes it's relatively infrequent but sometimes people um don't want to go back to work and when they're mandated to come and see someone whose job is to help them get back to work it can, there can be a bit of a bit of a battle but um more often than not people who give the appearance of not wanting to work are really struggling with confidence and perhaps haven't even recognized that that's a good point I wanted to come back to that point really you talked about people who might have been in work for a long time and then I mean, we've, we've seen lots of people have been made redundant um, through this last year or have lost their jobs. And Anna and I have both been made redundant. We know it, it really does knock your confidence, doesn't it? And it really puts you in quite an odd place. How do you work with those people then that have lost their jobs and maybe their confidence is at a low? Or those people who haven't even had work and are finding it difficult to get motivated to find a job? What do you do to get them ready and and be appealing to those employers that are looking for people who want to work yeah it's it's the same selection of things that are done for everybody in those situations whether they've been working for 25 years and lost their job for the very first time or whether it's someone who's never worked um, it's about assisting them in presenting themselves to the employers in the best possible way really and when the, when people become un, unemployed particularly long-term unemployed people they sort of get into a bit of a rut of just going through the motions and the they'll be applying for jobs via their phone just pressing apply 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 and and taking very little time to sort of analyze and really critique the quality of the applications that they're making um and for example if someone's worked for a very long time they may have got out of the habit of um or they may not have had an interview for 20 years or 10 years and it's um can be quite daunting going into an interview and irrespective of your background and your skills if you're going into an interview full of nerves and um and not feeling very confident you're not going to do a very good job and you're not going to get the job probably so i help people prepare for interviews i help people to consider what might be asked in interviews so they can prep you know i often will tell people that um an interview is just like a performance, really, but you are the character. And you don't go on stage to do Hamlet with, with knowing only half the lines, do you? You go on stage knowing all the lines and, and everything that goes with it, um, the intonation, the sort of the mood and all the rest. And um, if you're going into an interview, particularly if it's a job you really, really want, then you've got to learn your lines. And your lines are your your skills, your qualities, your experiences, having examples up your sleeve in response to questions. And if you do all of that, you can go into an interview, but not only do better, but also it's easier then to reflect on what you've done and improve particular areas where you feel like you didn't do so well. And um, I think that's it's a hard thing to do without someone suggesting it. And often it does take a third person a second person to work through those sorts of analyses with you because it's hard to do it for yourself and i think maybe the hardest bit it's so ironic because the time when you have to really show the best of yourself is also when you're probably at your lowest the carpet's been pulled from under your feet and that's when you have to perform the best to be able to do all that you have to really dig into yourself and be really i mean the mental work how do you find that what's the word grit yeah grit yeah yeah grit resilience determination yeah it's um it's it's tricky and there is a skill to it there's no doubt about it there's a skill to it and it takes you know being organized keeping a good healthy routine going on despite not working making sure that your well-being is uh, is taken care of by 
activity, exercise, doing things for yourself, just as you would do, I would say, to anybody who's working, you know, just make sure you're, particularly in these days, um, taking some time out once in a while to do something for you uh, is is really important. But yeah, when you're, when you're out of work, it's very easy to lose your self-confidence and it doesn't take very long at all for your connection with your working self to start to um, dissolve a little bit. And then you start to question whether you deserved the job you just lost and then and then maybe even agreeing with their reason for getting rid of you. And it, it happens to everybody. It's very, very natural. And that's, again, why it's helpful having someone else to look at it, look at you, you and your skills and experiences and your work history and all the rest of it through a different pair of eyes and just working through it methodically um saying right you've got a fantastic work history you've hardly ever had any gaps every job you've had has been for a long period of time any job you've lost it's been for you know an understandable reason and it's just getting people to analyze and think about all the achievements they've made all the things all the times that they've contributed to stuff all the times that they've been involved in a team that's been successful all the times that they've done a presentation and impressed people just as you would with a family member or a close friend um it's, it's to be that critical friend to that person and, and and ask them for evidence. If they say, for example, that I'm, I'm useless and nobody's going to want to work with me. Uh, and I'll tell you a really good example is often people in their, I suppose, late 40s onwards, really, will very quickly go down the avenue of assuming that people won't want them because they're, they're past their best or they're past their sell-by date. Oh, there's so many young people going for these jobs, etc. And once you start, once that seed is implanted in your brain, you start to then see it where it actually isn't present. So if you don't get an interview, they'll go, oh, well, they guessed my age, clearly, and they don't want me because of that. And um, that kind of thing, once it starts entering into your psyche, can be very damaging in, in terms of your performance, in terms of how you present yourself, in terms of how you even write your applications and your CVs, because you're preordaining the fact that you're not going to get the job because you're 52 or 53 years old, which is um, more often than not, not the case at all. Yeah, it does take a lot of resilience, doesn't it, I guess, the job search. So if you, someone is looking for a job and they've, say, come out of work and they're feeling a bit low, what do you say is the first steps they need to take to make themselves employable? Taking stock of all the things that you've done in that last job and everything else, making sure your CV looks as good as it possibly can. Be wary of so-called professional CV writers. I've known people spend two, £300 on getting a a CV that, in my view, is not worth 10 quid, let alone 250 quid. So be wary of so-called professional CV services and um, just make sure you kind of really review everything that you've done, think clearly about what you want to do in the future and get organised as quickly as possible and treat finding a job as a job, basically. Spend as much time on it as you possibly can not cutting any corners, making sure that everything that's going out, you know exactly what it looks like. Again, I've seen many, many people send out CVs, send out applications via Indeed, for example. And then when I do a review of the quality of the information on those accounts that they're sending out, they've uploaded the CV, but the CV is not uploaded properly. So there's bits missing out. It doesn't look very good. So the the version that the employer ends up getting looks like it's been created by someone who hasn't got a clue on how to write a CV because the formatting hasn't worked or what have you. So make sure you know exactly what the employee is going to see is a quite logical thing. But again, it's something that people forget or don't realise can happen. But getting organised as quickly as possible and um, try to take the personal out of it 
and just think there is an employer out there who will need you and will want you, but you have to somehow figure out a way of telling them that that is the case. Regarding the CVs, what are your top tips? How do you think regarding including a photo or your gender, your age? What should you put in there, really? Don't put your gender, don't put your age, don't put your address in there. Just your location, your name, phone number and email address and keep your CV as succinct and as clear as possible. And a CV can take a long time to create because you can go over and over it and over it again and remove duplication, remove unnecessary words, remove sentences that are just space fillers rather than telling someone anything. Keep it to two pages. Even people with 50 years work experience, you don't need more than two pages. And if you're going over two pages, the likelihood of someone reading it is just reduces quite significantly. You've got to be able to scan a CV. So big lumps of text is very off-putting when you've got 50 CVs to read. The text has got to be a, a reasonable size, I would say minimum of 12. Keep it um, a modern, nice, clear font like Calibri or um, Arial or something like that. And try and avoid over-formatting it with text boxes and that kind of stuff. can really play havoc with how it gets uploaded onto platforms and also a lot of bigger businesses will now have CV reading software, which will scan CVs for keywords and key comments and all the rest of it. And if it's over formatted, sometimes they can't read it. So uh, don't make it too fancy is what you're saying. I mean, uh, it needs to be aesthetically pleasing. It needs to be balanced. It needs to look good on the page, but avoid the colors and the squiggles and the um, photographs. All you're doing is offering someone to, to discriminate against you. If, if they don't want a particular type of person for whatever reason because they're bigoted or because they're prejudiced in any way you putting your photograph on there they're going to go well no we've got already got enough of those you know <laughs> white blokes who are 50 odd like me they might see my picture and think um no we've already got five of those we don't want any more of those so just again avoid the possibility of anybody making any judgment of you based on your on your appearance that's not what you want them choosing you on so how much has it changed then? Well, I know it has changed a lot in recent years with uh, the emergence of LinkedIn and other platforms like that. How do you notice that the job market, the labour market and the way jobs are advertised, how that has changed? Um, I think it's all digital now. And uh, I work with a lot of people who are over a certain age and they've either been in a career where they've not needed to really learn how to use IT and the technology and social media, etc. Just for example, the people who work in the construction industry, majority blokes, majority of them will, particularly those of them are in, who are in trades, will get to my kind of age, 50 odd, late 40s, early 50s, and suddenly get to a point where they just can't do the work anymore. It's too physical. But now you have to claim your benefits online, you have to apply for jobs online, you have to, to create a CV and upload that online, you have to engage with people. You've got the, the double whammy headache of uh, trying to change your career trajectory as well as very quickly learning how to do everything online. Gone are the days where you can just pop in with a CV into a business and say, there you go, I'm looking for a job. Have you got any? Uh, now they'll say, no, you, you need to go on our website. That's the default response these days. Still, you can do things through networks locally, through word of mouth, through connections and what have you. But uh, that tends to be the smaller businesses who uh, can be a bit more independent in the way that they work. I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is a brilliant way of finding people who could help you 
and um, connecting with them using old colleagues, old bosses. You can find them on LinkedIn pretty quickly. And if you had good relationship with them five years ago, they're not going to be bothered about you touching base with them. I've had lots of success with helping people find work through connecting with people they worked with 10, 20 plus years ago. And all I do is flip it and say, if someone was to contact you, if you were working and someone was to contact you on LinkedIn that you knew seven years ago and you got on really well with, would it bother you that they were connecting with you on LinkedIn? And people say, no, of course not. Would you want to help them? Yes, I would. Well, then that goes the same for you. As long as the approach is friendly and you don't try and ask someone for a favor, like straight off the bat, you know, it's not, you don't contact someone and say, I need some help to find a job. You say, hello, how are you? How are the kids? Um, and then you then move on to uh, asking for a bit of assistance. But yeah, things have changed a great deal very, very quickly. And people have had to adapt. I mean, the younger people are at an advantage in some ways in that regard because uh, they've obviously lived with it all their lives. But um, the technology is, is the biggest change and it's in, entirely digital these days. And also another thing, we were touching upon it, but now that we work so much longer, we're supposed to work until we're 70 plus, well, <laughs> healthy. And also with technology and everything changing, that the work we did when we were younger might not even be an option. No. So how many people do you help actually change what they're doing because they have to or because they want to? Well, people change what they're doing for all sorts of reasons. And um, I, I was just working with a guy in his um, late 60s, for example, who was a very senior project engineer, mechanical engineer by trade and been working on large projects. And um, he retired for a couple of years and thought, no, this is um, I don't want to retire. This is boring. And um, he trained to be a debt counsellor and money advice so i mean i worked with him and i said what kind of thing are you interested in doing he thought well, i said something similar to what you do i would think i would quite enjoy and uh, on having communication with him he i said well you seem like a pretty organized individual i said one of the biggest problems with people who become unemployed particularly those who are long-term unemployed is debt you can very quickly get behind on your rent get behind on your mortgage and before you know it you're in big trouble financially and um so he, he retrained in that and he's doing that part-time for a local charity part voluntarily part paid i've worked with a bricklayer who had been a, a marijuana addict and had been a bricklayer all, all his life and um helped him find work as a cleaner and he really enjoys it he really enjoys it it's uh, in a re retail cleaner he's become part of the, the team in the shop and um it's a lot less physical it's indoors not outdoors which he was really beginning to struggle with so yeah it's possible um some people choose to change direction because they don't they don't want as much stress but then it's about thinking about how you present yourself if you've got 25 years work experience as an it contractor and suddenly you want to become a driver for example it takes some imagination and some real kind of thinking about how you're going to present yourself because you'll be applying for a job as a driver against other people who've been a driver for 25 years and therefore they will look more appealing. So that's why you've got to use your guile and your intelligence um, to your advantage. And it's in those kinds of situations where thinking a bit creatively can often be make the difference between you getting an opportunity or, or not really. And LinkedIn is a good opportunity, good chance for that. Because if, if you've been living in a particular area for a very long time, use your friends and your parents of your children's friends and all the rest of it to, to, to find those opportunities. Because you'll know someone who works in a business who uses drivers, for example, you know, someone who works for a warehouse company in a senior role, they'll use drivers. You'll know someone who's a manager of a 
supermarket, they'll use drivers. So it's, then it's about using connections via LinkedIn to, uh, to benefit your situation. And I guess connections in every aspect, like you said, talking to friends, just having conversations with people just to say what, you, what you're what you looking for in terms of a job and, you know, talking about your, your strengths, et cetera. Would you say that's a good way of, Absolutely. of boosting your chances? In a, in a competitive job market, as it is right now, hustling is one of the key skills that you've got to develop. And this is why LinkedIn is so helpful, because you can hustle without having to bother people in their workplaces or ringing them up you can just send them a message you know hi there how's it going i don't know if you remember me i worked with you five years ago and uh, i always really enjoyed working with you i thought you were a fantastic person and i just right now i'm i could really do with your help and most people when they get approached in a way which is friendly and polite and asking for some advice or for some help you're going to want to do it right it's uh and and that's that's a really nice way of approaching someone for help. But yeah, hustling is a um, is a key skill. I did. I had a lady a couple of weeks ago who's, who started work last week actually, and we did a session. I did a session online about how to kind of engage with employers in the through the back door, if you like, without having to apply via only the advertised vacancies. And um, one of the methodologies I help people with is is you look at the businesses that are based within a maybe a half a mile to a mile of where you live. And there's invariably quite a lot, right? Particularly if you live anywhere near the centre of a town, such as Horsham. And um, and then you do, do some research on the businesses are in, that are in those areas. You go to the trading estates, you go to the retail parks, you go to the business parks and find out, look at all the business names on there. And you go on the websites, find out what they do, who they are, whether they're advertising right now. And if not, you just make a short list of the businesses that you think, I wouldn't mind working there. That looks like a really interesting place to be. And then you develop a strategy as to how you're going to engage with appropriate people in the business and that again you can use LinkedIn to do that um, who is their HR manager if they're on LinkedIn they're inviting a, an approach that's what you're on LinkedIn for and uh, anyway this this woman she went into um, it was uh, one of the um, trade businesses up on um, Foundry Lane on Foundry Lane in Horsham and she walked in there and um, started talking with them and asked them if they had any vacancies and um, it turns out that they were opening a new branch in Billingshurst and um, they really liked her. They liked the fact that she'd come in and presented herself in a really nice, positive, bubbly way. And she got interviewed for the vacancy in Billingshurst before they'd even advertised it. And um, she was offered it. And if she hadn't gone in there on that day, she wouldn't have heard about the vacancy and she wouldn't have got the opportunity of the interview. So um, you can find work before it's even advertised or certainly find work which they ha they may not even be thinking about advertising it yet but they might say well we, we might need someone in two months give us your cv yeah i agree i think that's a really good point because i remember in previous positions when i was recruiting for a company if someone really wants to work if they've already connected with you before there is a vacancy and you know that they're interested in working with you they love what you do or they've got an affinity then it definitely puts them in a good position doesn't it someone wanting to work with your organization is a is a massive plus isn't it rather than just waiting for there to be a, a position advertised and then thinking oh, I'll just have a go at you know you hear of stories of people who've admired a company for years and waited until they got to the point where they could apply for something and I think that definitely they finally get that dream job in that yeah. company that they've always wanted. I think so too. And that's the equivalent to knocking on companies' doors. Like you were just saying earlier, that you wouldn't do that nowadays, but you can easily do that online now instead. You can do it online. And um, 
and you can see straight away who who the key people are as well. It's a lot easier than trying to phone up the receptionist and get put through to someone, that's for sure. And it's a lot less nerve-wracking as well, of course, because um, you don't have to think too much about what you're saying. But as long as the approach, whether it's on LinkedIn or whether it's by email or what have you, is it's not the same thing that you sent to 20 organisations before. Each one needs to be specifically for that person it's like a cover letter if you send a cover letter or a random letter to businesses just trying to tell them that you're available for work well you know they if nobody likes to receive a, a round robin email or a round robin letter you know you'd like to have an, a letter that's come to you to, that says i'm really keen to, to talk to you about possibly working for your business i you know congratulations on the award you won last year for example yeah you know I'm, yeah. I'm, i've always admired your environmental policy for example or your ethical policy or whatever it is um because people who own a business or people who run a business they're people too and they like to be stroked and their egos kind of uh, polished and and all the rest of it so yeah i just think you need to make it specific i think well, if you make a really really good standard letter and then you just tweak certain bits so that you can, you yeah, can... Don't have to do it i'm not a big believer in having 50 different varieties of cv or letter i think you like you say you can have a standard good quality cv that's tweaked and amended very slightly for each but before you send it check it you know it's very easy to send out a cv and, and leave a one or two errant words in there that relate to another business and again that can be very off-putting yeah. self scanning and attention to detail is really really important I heard one tip uh, when I was, because uh, I was also made redundant just before moving to England from Sweden, actually. But then I also got some professional advice uh, linked to when all that happened. And one thing that that person said that really stuck with me was also with LinkedIn, that you can actually, just to simplify things a little bit, you can just like the companies that you would potentially want to work for uh, on LinkedIn, because quite often they will only advertise to people who like them, for instance. So that's a very simple way of narrowing it down. And I think you can think that way in, in lots of, um, I mean, you're sending out spontaneous CVs is another way. Uh, you send out the CV first and then you follow up with a call. If making that first phone call can be really daunting and a bit a bit scary, then you have already sent something out that you can refer back to. Yeah, you can. I think, um, yeah, sending something first before you call is, um, that, that's been a methodology for quite a long time. And I think even that methodology seems quite outdated these days okay um if you're sending a cv for a specific vacancy then following up with a phone call is i would always recommend that but if you're sending them a random cv on the hope that they might have something following up with a phone call can be quite awkward because uh, mm -hmm. so i sent your cv last week all right yeah we haven't got any vacancies yeah. and then you're kind of stuck in a situation where you have to try and sell yourself to an employer who's mm -hmm. just told you they're not advertising and one thing you want to avoid at all costs is ever being an irritant to a potential employer yeah. and there's lots of examples like for example if you turn up too early for an interview you know turn up 10 minutes early but not turn up 45 minutes early you know and I've had people turn up 45 minutes early to interviews and they're just sitting there awkwardly and they don't know what the environment is going to be like and if they make you feel awkward, you're not going to be going into that interview with a really good frame of mind. <laughs> so yeah, it's striking the right balance, isn't it, of being interested and offering the right skills, and not overdoing it. Yeah, it, it is a really tricky balance. Um, but just think again, fl flipping things around and thinking, right, how would I feel if someone was approaching me in this way? And particularly for people who've been in recruiting positions in the past, 
they just got to think, right, what, what kind of things used to impress me? What kind of approaches stood out for me? And then use that as your kind of baseline, if you like. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was about the benefits of yeah. being in work. Obviously, being in work brings a salary and we all need money to be able to pay our bills and our living costs. But I know you talked about someone who retired and then they decided they wanted to go back into work. Why is it so important to be in work and what are some of the benefits of actually having a job to go to other than the financial benefits? Hmm. Well, there's very many of them. There's uh, human beings, I think, need activity needs a structure need a purpose in life and work can be volunteering and pe people I know who have retired or who don't need to work anymore who volunteer get precisely the same kind of satisfaction from that as people who, who work you know, on a paid basis um, but yeah it's the it's the connection with other people in the workplace it's the sense of purpose it's the sense of achievement if you've got children it's that example you're setting to them about what living is all about really you know it's about contributing it's about giving as well as as well as receiving and um the simple message of you do something for someone and they pay you for it and that's a uh, a very clear message to pass on to uh, to children but predominantly it's about well-being mental health connections with people and purpose and all of those things kind of get lost when you're not working isolation can set in a lack of motivation routine goes out the window and again human beings when the routine goes out the window that's when sleep starts to get screwed up with eating habits go down the pan and um and general confidence as well so um it's it's lots of very simple but also quite a few complex things in there but yeah it's it's really important so i've heard that you have uh, actually been really successful in your you've had a big success rate people who, who come to you for help you're really good at helping them they actually do find jobs oh yeah i've had some i've had a few standout successes that i'm particularly proud of yeah i'd say depending on the the cohort of people but i would say it sort of varies between 40 and 65 percent of people who work with me will successfully move into work during the period that I'm working with them, if that makes sense. Because often there is a time limit on how long I get to spend with someone with a DWP contract, for example. So you might get a year, you might get two years to spend with someone. If someone's been long-term unemployed or never worked and they're in their 40s, getting them in back into work from a standing start in 12 months is actually a really challenging thing to do. But getting someone who's just dropped out of work back into work can be a relatively easy thing to do. But it's not that isn't what defines how easy it is. It's about the attitude of the person and how committed they are to the idea of going back to work. But yeah, I, I've some of my I mean, I had a young man who, for example, he lost um, two very close members of his family, including his father when he was doing, doing his A-levels and then lost. He lost all hope in life and was very, very damaged with his mental health barely left his room for three or four years and as far as people with anxiety and depression goes he was about as low as it gets um, in my experience but I stuck with him over about a year or so he didn't turn up probably to more appointments than he did turn up because he just didn't have the energy or the motivation to do it and um, got him into a volunteering role which he dipped in and out of over a period of time and um, finally managed to get help him get paid work and um, 
he's already been promoted and he's he's absolutely loving the job and i saw him not long ago and he's unrecognizable he just looks like a really happy confident 25 year old bloke now um and that's um he's back with his girlfriend he's he's got activities on in his life again and it's amazing. It's brilliant. And I didn't do anything complicated with him. I just sort of kept telling him that he was worth, he was worth investing in, that he should be achieving things and, um, and just making that phone call once in a while and saying, are you going to come in to see me today? And just reminding him of, of how valuable he is and how much I was interested in him and helping and, and all the rest. Um, so he's one and um, people who come out of prison, are, I love working with guys who've just come out of prison because they, they are often in a really tricky position and there's very little available for them to help them to um, re-assimilate if you like into society and uh, people just aren't interested in helping them quite frankly and I'd rather have people who've come out of prison working than not because if they're not working then they're going to be considering other things to do and that's how people get back into prison because they have very little of value to do so they think all right might as well just do that again you know and um so getting them into work is is really sad well one of those for example i managed to get him a job back with the employer who worked with him 15 years before he went into prison and they said yeah we'll give him another chance yeah because he left that job because of something that happened there went into prison for 15 years as a result of that incident which was quite a serious incident but they knew the circumstances behind it and when i first mentioned to him why don't we give them a call he was like, no, no, they're never going to take you back after what happened. Oh, well, you never know. And I knew all the story behind what happened. And they didn't hesitate in taking him back and giving him a chance because they recognised that he paid his dues and he deserved that opportunity. Fantastic stories, both of them. Yeah, it's amazing what you what you can do and how you've helped people in, in that important role of making them have some contribution, as you say. Yes, yeah, it's giving them ideas that it's hard to think of for yourself. And I'm exactly the same. When I'm doing my CV someone else's input is needed because they'll be spelling mistakes, errors and repetitions, which only another person can often see. Or, I mean, we're all very bad at selling ourselves as well. And um, I'm as bad as anybody else. And my wife will often say to me, well, why aren't you going for that? Well, because I can't, I'm not capable of doing that. Well, of course you are. And and it's exactly the same. We're all the same, like, which is why I love this job so much, because often it's not particularly complex suggesting things to someone else because from you where you're standing it sounds perfectly logical because you're seeing them from an external perspective and richard i know that also on top of all the help that you offer to people finding jobs uh, CTAS is also offering a number of different courses do you want to tell us a little bit about that sure yeah we've been delivering mental health related courses for the last couple of years um the main one is a, a course called mental health first aid it's uh developed by Mental Health First Aid England, who are part of an international group of organisations. Um, and it's basically a, a course that trying to build a parallel between physical first aid and mental health first aid, really. And uh, mental health first aid is a brilliant two day course, which equips people with the understanding of different mental health conditions, how to communicate with people about those mental health conditions, how to recognise symptoms of different mental health conditions and um, the fundamental principle of it is to try and raise awareness and also raise uh, the level of how comfortable we all are in in having communication about these very important topics so yeah we deliver that two-day course but also shorter awareness courses as well 
And that's something completely apart from the employment side. And this is a course that you would pay for? Yes, this is a course that we deliver to businesses and individuals now. We deliver it nationally, clearly, because people can participate remotely. So um, yeah, I deliver at least one course a week, often to people in different parts of the country. And um, yeah, it's a paid for course. Yeah. And what sort of qualification do you get afterwards? Well, if you do the two day course, you become an accredited mental health first aider, which is a, a recognized certificate. And um, for people who've done the physical first aid course, I think it's, it's easiest to sort of Think of it as a similar qualification to that. I see. In, in the sense that the physical first aid course doesn't train you to become a paramedic or, or or a medical professional. It just teaches you to keep people calm, teaches you to sort of deal with the immediate effects after an accident or what have you. And um, mental health first aid is a very similar level of qualification as that. So sort of if you're you're working, if you're a manager of a company, to be able to pick up signals of people feeling unwell, that sort of thing? Exactly, yeah. I mean, it, it costs a lot of money every year to the country and to businesses and to employers with people going off long-term sick because of mental health difficulties. And more often than not, those mental health difficulties could potentially have been recognised a lot earlier on before they get to crisis point. Um, And that's what the course is basically all about, really. It's enabling line managers and colleagues to get to know the symptoms and the signs and the signals um, to be able to help people, really, and giving people the confidence to approach an individual who's exhibiting signs and say, is everything okay? I've noticed this. Are you okay? Is there anything I can do to help? And these are simple conversations that people have been avoiding for a very long time. Yeah. Another thing I saw on your website that you actually benefit from EU funding. Is Brexit going to affect you in any way? Do you know? That's a good question. Yeah, a lot of the employment programs or community related programs does benefit from EU funding. And um, it's a little known fact that a lot of charities, a lot of community organisations do use funds that come through the European Union. So yes, it will affect it. The government have said that they're going to replace it with another fund. So hopefully these contracts will, well, I know they will continue because the need now is significantly greater than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, we're still in lockdown. So it's going to be Zoom for a while yet, probably. Yeah, and that does add challenges. When you're dealing with a person, as we mentioned earlier on, who doesn't have their own IT facilities or doesn't have the confidence to use computers and therefore effectively now they are entirely isolated from the job market, not because of where they live necessarily, but because of the technology that they don't have access to anymore. So, um, yeah, it's a real shame. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Right. Thank you so much, Richard. I think you've really given us a good uh, overview of what you do, what CETAS does and how you can get back on your feet when you've lost your job and try to find that motivation. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Richard. We've got some really good tips in there for finding a job. It's been great to speak to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us on Sounding Out Horsham. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Anna. If people are interested now and want to get in touch with you, how do they reach you? The best way, I suppose, is via our website, which is www.cetas.org.uk. And um, on there, you've got a contact us uh, link, which you can send a message and we'll come back to you, whether it's about employment support or mental health support. Fantastic. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, S.O. Horsham. Or you can email us on sohorsham at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.